Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your great mercy that we would be those who hear and tremble at your word this morning so that we would know its good work in our lives, uh, turning us to our Lord Jesus and through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, be equipped to live for him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Who can live with God? Uh, Live at peace with him in his presence. Now, perhaps that question doesn't pique your interest. It sounds a little abstract, a little detached from the day-to-day life that preoccupies your thinking, from your daily cares and pleasures, a daily life that it seems at times you can live almost unconscious of God. But think for a moment about God, not some vague idea, but the God who has made himself known in the history of Israel and finally in his son Jesus. This God says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, the eyes of those who live with him. And we all know grief and regret. We all know tears. This God can overcome death, has in himself a deathless life life that he can share with those like us who die. He can heal and restore. He can protect and defend. He can find the solution when we can see none, rescue where all seems hopeless. He can bring water from the rock. He can part the sea. He can stop the boasting of violent men. He lives and so he hears those who call on him. He sees all that befalls them, is always near. He is always true, always righteous and just. There's no shadow, not a hint of evil in him, no destructive wickedness in his presence. And he is the God who fills the universe, almighty, ever-living. Those at peace with him are secure forever. In him, says the fountain, is the fountain of life, and in his light we see light. If even for a moment you entertain the thought that the living God is as the Lord Jesus reveals him to be, then you also realise that the question of who can live at peace with this God is not an abstraction, but is the most important question you or I can ever engage with. It's the key to present peace and future hope in a chaotic and disordered world in which all face death. And who can live at peace with God, live in his house, be at home with him, is the theme of Jeremiah 7. But Jeremiah 7 comes at it from the other direction. It tells us who can't live at peace with God, will never be able to live in God's presence. And it does this because perhaps like you, Jeremiah's hearers, were those who were confident that they could live, were living in the living God's presence for his temple, his house, the place where he had made his name to dwell, was there in the middle of the city and they were the Lord's people to whom he committed himself in the covenant at Sinai. They were confident they had, as it were, God, the Lord, the God of Israel on their side and in their pocket. But Jeremiah says they are sadly deceived. 
And in Jeremiah 7, is making clear to them that they're amongst those who cannot live at peace with God in his presence and would soon know that beyond doubt when Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed and those of them who are left alive are driven from the land. And because nothing is more important for you, whether you are yet a believer in Jesus or not, the knowing that you can live in the presence of the Lord, the living almighty God at peace with him. And because many of us are believers in Jesus and so amongst those who are confident we are at peace with God, and because like Jeremiah's hearers, we can be deceived about our relationship with the Lord, let's listen firstly to who the Lord through Jeremiah says can never live in his presence And then what the Lord says about who in truth can live without fear with him, in whose presence is life and joy forever, so that we are among them now and forever. So who does Jeremiah say cannot live in the Lord's presence? Well, firstly, it's those who use half-truths, truths taken out of their context and misapplied, to insulate themselves from the Lord's warnings. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord and there call out this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, correct your ways and your actions and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust deceitful words chanting, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God's warning to the people of Jerusalem coming up to the temple is pretty clear. Correct your ways, verse 3. Don't trust in deceptive words, verse 4. They're continuing to live in his presence in this place, which could either be Jerusalem and the temple or the land, for both are understood to be the Lord's, was dependent on, conditional on, their obedience to this word. And what they were to correct was very clear. These people were religious, dutifully coming up to worship at the temple, keeping up with sacrifice and other religious observances, but they were oppressing and exploiting the weak and the vulnerable. If you act justly towards one another. If you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods. The weak and the vulnerable whom God's law explicitly protected and provided for from the beginning. At Sinai, the Lord had said, you must not exploit a resident alien or oppress him since you were resident aliens in Egypt. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And if they did, the Lord said, his anger would burn against them. You see, from the beginning, the Lord had made the test of loyalty to him, of love of him, whether his people loved the weakest, the poorest, those with the least rights. But Jeremiah's hearers weren't paying any attention to the law or the warnings. They were confident they'd be okay, be protected even from God's judgments, insulated from his anger because they had the temple. They were trusting those deceptive words, this is the temple 
of the Lord. But why are those words deceptive? I mean, wasn't the temple in Jerusalem the temple of the Lord? Well, yes, it was. It was the place he had graciously made his name to dwell. That is, where people could always find and approach him and seek mercy. And hadn't they learned from Hezekiah's deliverance from the Assyrian invaders about a 100 years before that the Lord would protect his temple and city, that it would never be allowed to fall into the hands of those who would harm it? Hadn't the Lord said to Hezekiah, I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David? Weren't they right to be confident? But this confidence, the Lord said, meant they were openly disobedient to covenant standards. He lists the commandments 6 to 9 and 1 and 2 as being broken by them. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense, follow other gods? They had departed from their covenant commitment, showed no love of God or neighbour, and yet were still confident the Lord would rescue them to keep, in their words, sinning, doing all these detestable acts. They were confident in the temple they had a cover for sin, that it was a den of robbers. And, of course, for robbers, their den is a place of safety, a place where they can avoid accountability. In their view, you see, it was those who openly defied and disobeyed the Lord who could be at home in his house. In fact, they were so confident that not only were they deaf to the Lord's warnings through his prophet, they were blind to history. When Israel had conquered Canaan under Joshua, the tabernacle, the forerunner of the temple where the ark of God lived in the Holy of Holies, had been established at Shiloh. And it was actually was there for hundreds of years. But then it disappeared from Israel's life, unlamented, around the middle of the 11th century. You see, their history told them that the Lord had once before destroyed the place where he made his name to dwell because of the wickedness of his people. But the people were sure this couldn't happen to them. Now, what made them completely deaf to God's warnings and blind to God's judgments in history? Well, it's those deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, and they were deceptive. For they had taken a truth, the Lord's temple, and fashioned it into a lie by isolating it from everything else God said. You see, they only heard what they wanted to hear, not all that God was saying, not what God said to them repeatedly and insistently, that there must be love of God and neighbour seen in obedience to his law, if they're to be his people. You see, they wanted to divorce God's gracious protection from an obedient faith, treat God as an object they could take for granted and use his grace to them in giving them the temple as an excuse to keep on sinning. And in this, Jeremiah tells us in chapter 8, worth reading, that they've been supported by their religious teachers, the scribes whose lying pen produced falsehoods from the law the wise who had rejected the word of the Lord, preachers who told the people what they wanted to hear, peace, peace for profit. 
We need to hear Jeremiah's warning against living unrepentant lives and trusting in deceptive words. For our Lord Jesus is very clear that those who are his people must show the obedience of faith. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons, do many miracles? They were religious. But the Lord says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Then as now, God will never have those who persistently disobey him who claim to be secure as his people while all the while doing the very things he hates, breaking his law, dwell with him. He'll never have them dwell with him, no matter how religious they are, how regular at church, how pious their language. As Paul says in Galatians and repeatedly, and there are references in the handout, those who practice what he calls the works of the flesh, Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is what God's word says, yet many who call themselves Christians maybe even you, seem to feel they can, for example, practice sexual immorality, which is any sex outside marriage of a man and a woman, pursue greed, live loveless lives, give way to abusive talk, practice those things and be safe. And in this, yes, they're still bolstered by teachers whose lying pens turns the word of God into a lie, whether that's bishops who endorse same-sex relationships or TV preachers who encourage greed under the name of prosperity. And us, what truths of scripture might you be turning into lies to serve your sin by divorcing them from all that God has said? So where are we proclaiming peace to ourselves in the face of God's clear declaration of wrath against those who practice such sin. Now, test all things, but I'm going to make a suggestion and there are a couple of more in the handouts. You know, you could think of justification by faith, election, God is love. But let's just think about justification by faith. You know, people say, if you just believe, all is forgiven. Always. Well, there is free and complete forgiveness for those who believe in the Lord Jesus for sins past, present and future. But that believing, that faith unites us to Christ. So the Apostle Paul can say after Romans 5 where he said, we have peace with God, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on and says in Romans 6, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin? so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
So we too may walk in newness of life, a new life where we die daily to sin. If there is no good fruit of a changed life, well, it means the root of the tree is dead. There is no saving faith, no comfort in a doctrine of justification divorced from everything else our God has said to us. The Lord Jesus is the friend of sinners, but he is never friendly to sin. There's never been a time when God accepts those who abuse his grace, who keep on being determined to do whatever they want and not what God commands in his house. And yes, it is what God commands. We're not free agents. Jesus is Lord, not our advisor. So are you using the truths of God to justify your sin, to give you a false peace, to ease your conscience? Are you corrupting them by isolating them from all that God has said, using them to actually stop hearing God's call to you of repentance and to blind yourself to the reality of the judgments he pronounces? Those who do so cannot live in his presence, nor can those who are idolaters at home, whatever their public behaviour, and profession. As for you, do not pray for these people. Do not offer a cry or a prayer on their behalf and do not beg me for I will not listen to you. Don't you see how they behave in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The sons gather wood, the fathers light the fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven and they pour out drink offerings to other gods so that they provoke me to anger. But are they really provoking me? This is the Lord's declaration. Isn't it they themselves being provoked to disgrace? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Look, my anger, my burning wrath is about to be poured out on this place, on people and animals, on the tree of the field, on the produce of the land. My wrath will burn and not be quenched. You see, the Lord now tells Jeremiah, verse 20, that there are some whom he is determined will face his anger. Now, it's shocking, isn't it, to hear Jeremiah be forbidden to pray? But there'll be no turning back from judgment now upon those who persistently and privately practice their idolatry. Jeremiah says the Lord would be wasting his words. You see, the Lord had clearly forbidden the worship of other gods, but in their homes... The whole family's involved in the worship of the Queen of Heaven, the name for Ishtar or Asherah, a goddess of war and fertility to whom women were particularly devoted for she was the one who gave fertility to crops, to animals, to women, who was concerned with the core elements of domestic household flourishing. In their homes, where values and faith are shaped, The plenty the Lord gave was being attributed to a dead idol. The devotion the Lord deserved was being given to something their own hands had made. And their private religion made their public worship useless. That's the point of verse 21. This is what the Lord of hosts says, the God of Israel. 
Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. You see, burnt offerings, Leviticus 1, were never meant to be eaten. It was all meant to be burnt in atonement for sin. But the Lord says they may as well eat, for sacrifice is no substitute for obedience. The Lord called for well before he had given the people of Israel the laws of sacrifice at Sinai. See, where they're determined to ignore God and worship idols, whether they keep the rules of sacrifice or not, will make no difference. Their sacrifices are useless. And this disobedient idolatry was persevered in, verse 24 and 26, persevered in because they obstinately refused to listen to the Lord. And the Lord says those who do that, who don't listen or pay attention to the Lord and give their private worship to idols, can never live in his presence. And we need to hear that because idolatry is a feature of modern life, giving our trust and obedience to the creation of our own hands and minds. Idol worship, wrote Tim Keller, is substituting some created thing for God in the heart, in the centre of life, looking to your own wisdom and competence or to some other created thing to provide the power, approval, comfort and security that only God can provide. And we can even make idols of good things like family or sport or human love. So let me ask, in your home, where do you teach prosperity and security comes from? What do you organise your life around? And I'll now give a couple of examples, modern idols, uh, only two. There are three there in the notes. There are lots more we could use. But as we look at them, test all things, see if you think your life. So first example, money. Is your family life, your time organised around getting and spending money? Is it seen as the source of all good? Do you hope in it to keep you secure in old age? Do you think if you just won the lottery, all your problems would be solved? Or do you fear to offend the sources of money so that you bend the rules when asked? Or work the extra long hours that stop you from obeying God's commands like loving your husband or wife or children, caring for your neighbours or meditating on God's word or meeting with his people? Do you teach that life satisfaction is to be found in what money makes possible? Material consumption, spending on yourself, whether it's clothes or IT gadgets or holidays? Or do you give thanks to the Almighty God for the blessing you receive regularly in your home together? Do you do what he commands, knowing that the God who knows what we need before we ask has promised that where we seek his kingdom and righteousness, he will provide all we need? Do you model not consumption, but self-control and generosity to others? Are you worshipping Money at home. Here's another. Because we can make idols of good things as well. Take the family. Jeremiah's picture of a family 
you know, mum, dad and the kids united around a common activity is actually something many of us desire. In fact, for some of us, that's the idol we worship. We look to the family to give us happiness, security, identity, now and into the future. And for that, we set aside obedience to the Lord's commands about how we use our time and money. We refuse to have those hard conversations with family members. We tolerate in our homes what God condemns. Test all things. But as soon as you find yourself saying, the most important thing is keeping the family together and make that your your guide as opposed to saying the most important thing is faithfulness to the Lord Jesus because he's our life, our security, our hope. The Lord Jesus who said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whenever you're saying the most important thing is keeping the family together, you know you are worshipping an idol in your heart and in your home and as idols always do, it will let you down. We can go to church, yet in our families be normalising the worship of the idols of our age. So what are you worshipping at home. You see, I'm not a prophet. I can't see what goes on in your homes, your conversations, where you spend your time, what you unite your family around. You see, only you can answer. See if there's anything to change so that your family life is ordered around and teaches that we live to please our Lord Jesus in whom his life and love, we live to please him through doing what he commands. I can't see, (coughs) but the Lord sees. He is the one to whom all our hearts and homes are open. And the Lord says, those who engage in idolatry in their homes will not live in his presence, nor will those who practice what the Lord abhors, sacrificing the innocent, children who belong to God for adult safety and security. And that's what's happening in verses 30 and 31. For the Judeans have done what is evil in my sight. They have set up their abhorrent things in the house that bears my name in order to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth in Ben-Hinnom Valley in order to burn their sons and daughters in the fire a thing I did not command, I never entertained the thought. Now Manasseh, the wicked king who reigned before Josiah, who promoted the sacrifice of children to gain the favour of the gods, sacrificing one of his own sons in the Ben-Hinnom Valley just outside Jerusalem. Josiah had stopped that practice. But the people had revived it, even though it was a practice the Lord forbade from the beginning of Israel's life, a practice, he has said, would cause him to expel the people from his land, from his presence, cause the land to vomit them out as it had the Canaanites before them. You are not to sacrifice any of your children in the fire of Moloch. Do not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
Do not defile yourselves by any of these practices, for the nations I am driving out before you have defiled themselves by all these things. The land has become defiled, so I am punishing it for its iniquity, and the land will vomit out its inhabitants. But you are to keep my statutes and ordinances. You must not commit any of these detestable acts. Not the native or the alien who resides among you, for the people who are in the land prior to you have committed all these detestable acts, and the land has become defiled. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it has vomited out the nations that were before you. You know, the Lord says, did you hear it? It never came into his mind that his favour could be won by people's sacrifice of their children. That is true. And the testing of Abraham in Genesis 22 is no exception. That is a response to grace, not an attempt to gain grace, a test that looked for faith in the God of life who could raise the dead and who could provide, not take, on his mountain. But what's going on? Why would people do the unimaginable and sacrifice their children? Well, it was to gain the favour of the God, giving what is most valuable to impress the God so that he would reward the worshipper with protection and prosperity. It was an attempt to buy favour, help. See, they were sacrificing the innocent to promote adult safety and security, to buy the adults the good life. And the Lord expected his people not just to not do that, (coughs) but not tolerate that amongst themselves, not to look, Leviticus 20, not to look the other way. Now, you might be thinking, that is just so terrible. But we would never do that or tolerate that. Really? What's the abuse of children in churches been about, if not the sacrifice of children for adult sexual desire to give an adult their perverted vision of the good life? Or what's abortion, if not the sacrifice of innocent human life for the sake of adult safety and security, to give those who practice it the life they desire? to protect the freedom and rights we idolise. And you say, it could not happen amongst us. Well, I'm raising it to say it must not happen amongst us. For I know, because I used to talk about it, I have had conversations with mothers, yes, mothers, in other churches. I know that there are some who call themselves Christians who if their daughter fell pregnant out of marriage would recommend abortion to save their daughter's future. And it's so easy now, isn't it? You just get RU486 from the chemist and who would know? God knows. Oh, and another. I know the breakdown of marriages and divorce occurs for all sorts of reasons, sometimes where great wrong has been done to a partner in unfaithfulness and abuse. But I also know some just leave their marriages and their children to pursue their dreams, to find themselves for a new love. Now, what is that 
if not sacrificing the innocent. For such abandonment messes up children's lives to buy an adult what they see as their best life. But you have heard God. The days are coming when this might be called Ben Hinnom Valley, but Slaughter Valley, because there'd be no burial place. The corpses will become food for the birds. The land will become a desolate waste. You see, those who do those things cannot live in God's presence. Don't deceive yourselves. So who does the Lord say has no place in his presence, can never know peace with him, even though they claim, think of themselves as his people and go to the temple or the church? Those who turn truth into lies by isolating them from all the rest of what God says, turn truth into lies to insulate themselves from the Lord's warnings. Those who are idolaters in their hearts and homes, those who practice what the Lord abhors. If they will not live in his presence, who can? Who can live at peace with the living God? Now, if you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus, this is a question for you as well. You see, this part of God's word is primarily addressed to those who already think they are God's people, are confident in that state. It's addressed as a warning to them. But the sins that make God determined to drive these religious people from his presence, the breaking of his law in loveless behaviour to others, idolatry, giving to created things the thanks and trust that belongs to our creator, the sacrifice of innocent human life on the altar of adult desire and the pursuit of adult security, those things also mean you are shut out from God's good presence alienated him, subjected to his wrath, if you're doing them, even when they are not accompanied by the hypocrisy that so provokes the Lord. Who can live at peace with God is a question for you as well as the believers here today. And the answer is clear. It is those who listen to God's word and obey. You see, what condemned the people of Judah was their refusal to listen and repent, a deep refusal, for they've actually corrupted the word, made it a vehicle for their desire, so they could never hear it. They were condemned because I've spoken to you time and time again, but you wouldn't listen. I have called, and you wouldn't answer. What would have saved them, allowed them to keep living in God's presence was listening to the Lord, responding to his call to repent, to turn back to him and live by his commands. And what will save us is keeping on listening to our living God's voice in his word. And if you're not yet a believer, That word you must listen to is the gospel word. The word that says the Lord Jesus was crucified for our sins, was buried, has been raised by God never to die again, raised as Lord with all authority on heaven and earth. 
And that word does call you to repent. That is, to say that you've been wrong, to live up to now as the Lord of your own life, the final arbiter of your own truth, to say that you're wrong living to please yourself and disobeying God. And uh, that word says it's right and calls you to turn to the living Lord Jesus for forgiveness and a new heart to love God and do his will. Now, you might be, for all sorts of reasons, ready to do that now as God has convicted you of both the reality of your sin and of his judgment and that the Lord Jesus lives to save. And it is as simple as asking the Lord Jesus to forgive you and give you a new heart. And you can do that alone or with someone else, a believer you came with or one of the elders or pastors. But to be honest, I haven't spoken much of the Lord Jesus and what he's done today. And so you might, as you hear about sin and judgment, need to hear more. So come and talk. But if you call yourself a believer, the word we all must listen to is this word of rebuke and warning to make sure we have nothing to do with these behaviours that God says would mean Whatever our profession, we have no place in his presence. And if God through his word has convicted you today that you actually have been using God's truth to justify your continuing disobedience of the Lord Jesus, that you have been looking to idols for your security, identity and happiness and not to your good and loving saviour, worshipping them by doing what they require of you and not obeying your Saviour in whom is life, doing what your Saviour's taught. Oh, and if he's convicted that you've been tolerating or even sharing in the sacrifices of the innocent to promote your own life, all sins which if continued in will drive you from his presence forever, whatever you claim for yourself. If God has convicted you of that through his word today, you need to hear as well as this clear rebuke and warning the word the Lord Jesus spoke to another church whose behaviour, if continued, the Lord warned would cause him to vomit them out of his mouth. Uh, Cause them to be ejected from his presence forever. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to that church in Laodicea of how their complacent worldliness turned his stomach. Our Lord said to them, As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You see, hearing this warning and rebuke today is actually an expression of your Lord's love for you. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. And see his graciousness. The Lord Jesus could have come in terrifying wrath and might to his sinful people. But he is patient. He doesn't blast down the door. He stands and knocks calling you to repent of doing what seems right in your own eyes, to repent of defying his lordship by disobeying his word, to repent of presuming on his kindness by keeping on doing what you know he forbids. 
He stands and knocks and calls you to open your life to him. And he says then, instead of being excluded forever from his presence, where you will listen to him, where you will repent of those proud sins that show your trust has been in yourself and not in him, yourself who is so fallible. Well, he says wonderfully, he will restore peace between you and him, make you forgiven, secure in his presence. And he gives us a picture of that because what better assurance of peace and safety can our Lord give than saying he will sit and share a meal with us? So our Lord Jesus is knocking. Heed him. Heed what he says. Be zealous and repent. Confess. Ask for his forgiveness and for renewed grace to live the life that pleases him, the life that listens to and does what he says, the life of those who are at peace in his presence now and forever. Don't be amongst those who the living good God will exclude from his presence forever. Hear him. He stands at the door and knocks and he says he will come in. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in your mercy, we pray that through the powerful work of your Spirit we would put sin to death. We pray that you would give us always hearts that tremble at your word, that don't reject it, that don't try and use it to make us feel comfortable in sin. We pray that always your word would turn us away from sin and turn us to you, the true and living God. Help us to be those who can live with you because we have heard and we have trusted our Lord Jesus and we live for him to do his goodwill always. In Jesus' name, amen.